I have a book that I use a lot when I do baby dedications. It's um, it's a book of 10,000 names. And uh, a lot of them are alike, and very few are African or Asian or anything like that. But I, I, I use these so that when somebody gives a name to a child, I can usually look it up. Some of you have stumped me. And I, you know, I, where you got your names, I have no idea. But as I do that, it goes back into the original. In other words, this was the language that it came from, and this is what it meant back then. Well, that makes sense, but did you realize that very few of us give our children's names according to, oh, I like what this name means. You don't have this book. I do. So if you want to, if you're pregnant and you want to know, okay, I, what you're thinking, I'll, I'll give this to you. But the problem is, is that when we think of names for our children, it's more personal. We, it's not just the story of what the name means, but really it's more of our personal story. Our two boys are named after two of my favorite characters in the Bible. Maybe you've named somebody after a famous uncle or your dad and you're the fifth in line or something like that. Our daughter, her name is Stacy. She wasn't named after anybody in the Bible. She was named after her grandmother. And that was her nickname and we just thought we'd make it hers. You see, there are accounts going on of how do we come up with names. I have one here. My name was supposed to be Gilbert. And it was a family name. I would have been about the fifth Gilbert in a row, generation after generation. Except I had a very stubborn Albanian father. And my stubborn Albanian father said, no one in this line is going to be named Gilbert. And he's put down his foot and he said, we're going to find something so that when he walks home, he won't have to protect himself and from being teased and have to learn self-defense at a very early age. So he named me James. Now, James has a meaning to it. James means supplanter, supplanter, deceiver, cheater. <laughs> I didn't know that till I read the book. And I don't think my dad ever read the book either. Do you know what Gilbert means? Trusted. (laughs) Well, suddenly Gilbert doesn't sound so bad unless, of course, nobody else reads the book either. So uh, I stick with Jim and and, or James, and it goes to Jim. And it's like a lot of you, you know, one-syllable names you probably means you won't have to be fighting after school. Bob, Tim, Ron, Joe, Tom. Things like that make it very easy in one-syllable, three-letter names. Um, However, often it's just a little bit more behind a name. Like, for example, where we're going this morning. You see, Joseph's name means he will add. And it was given by his father, Jacob, to him. And, and Jacob's name means supplanter too. It was given by, you know, by his dad to him. And he grew up being the favorite son until he was sold into slavery and they thought he had died. Um, his name means he will add, but that's not the story of his life. You see, the story of his life is not, you know, who was... Uh, who was somebody named Joseph that dad really liked. The story of his life is not what Joseph means. The story of his life is the story of his life. In other words, when we think of Joseph, we don't think, 
what, what is his name, but we think what happened in Joseph's life that we would remember from now on. We are coming to the end of our series. We have this week and next week. And believe me, I haven't done it as thoroughly as you could endure. But as we come to the end, we're looking at the central character named Joseph. We know what his name means, uh, but it's not that he did add later on in his life. But our focus has really been on the story of Joseph, the painful journey from a favored son of a dysfunctional family, that journey that led him to slave, to being a convict, and within less than 24 hours, suddenly becoming prime minister of the greatest civilization of his era. So names do have meaning. He shall add, yes, there's a story behind that name. But when you look at the name of Joseph, we understand that all throughout this, this account, the name and the story of Joseph is not just what happened to him, but what was the God behind him? What was the God in terms of his direction of Joseph's life? We call it intentions. We've been calling it intentions because we have to understand there are a lot of human intentions out there. Your parents give you a name that they think, you know, that rolls off the tongue well. I, I always wanted Dan DeMoler. Doesn't that show power? But I didn't, never got it. You know, we have intentions. But the intention of God is bigger than anything that Joseph or his parents could have imagined. Behind it is the story of a life directed by God, a life where God uh, achieves his intention. And not just for Joseph's life, but for his treacherous family that sold him into slavery, and also for the entire nation of Egypt. And the issue is, do you believe you have a bigger intention given by God than perhaps you believe you have, But God has it in mind for you. You see, Joseph, in many ways, is just another person like each of us. Oh, he has certain talents, maybe, that are beyond us. But he's just another guy. And the question is, do you believe God has intentions for each of our lives? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's intentions will triumph over the selfish and evil intentions of others? Or the big question of the whole series is, Do you believe God is really sovereign over your life? And you live in a culture where the answer is no. He's not. I'm sort of here by myself. I'm here to make life and and journey through my life and do the best I possibly can. That is what our culture is saying. But Genesis tells us something else. So we're at this point today called Milestones of Thanksgiving. You see, in Genesis 38 to 50, uh, it features Joseph, and it's one of the great turnaround stories that we all love to hear. We love success story when somebody overcomes poverty, disease, um, they have a poor education, or they face some sort of disability or adversity in their lives. We, we look at them as models for overcoming hardship. And we attach names to those stories. Let me give you three pictures of people. And yes, two of them are Republicans. Please, they just came to mind, all right? So please don't label me. But the first one is Condoleezza Rice. She grew up in poverty in the South. Her parents were sharecroppers. But boy, is this lady smart and multi-talented. And she's uh, respected and successful in everything she does. 
She is the, she was the Secretary of State and now Professor of Policy at Stanford University. And believe me, she's an intellectual force still in terms of national policy. And don't go into a room with her to argue. You will not win. The next one is Ben Carson. Grew up in poverty in Michigan, but became the chief neurosurgeon. And here's the first thing he did that he'll be remembered for. Well, many things, but he was the first one to separate successfully conjoined twins who are conjoined at the skull. They share a head. And he's done it 11 times. I don't care where he goes in politics. He has a story. And and it's an amazing one. But he's black, he's smart, he's conservative, he's well-mannered, and he's running for the Republican nomination of President of the United States. And both Ben and Condoleezza are profession, uh, professing Christians. Well, Hollywood also loves these overcoming stories, uh, these turnaround events. Rocky Balboa. <laughs> you go, Jim, you've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. Adrian! <laughs> but we love the first two. It's when we got to 17 and 18, you know, where we just said, there's nothing more to say about Rocky. But what is it about Rocky? Well, he was stupid. <laughs> but he had a fighter's heart. And he was stubborn. He would not give up. And so we've sort of given up on him after so many sequels. But did you notice that every time before he fights... He's, he kneels in the ring and he prays and he genuflects. At least he thinks he's a Catholic Christian. Well, that's marvelous. Now we come to Joseph. He is one of those stories of hardship, injustice, and victimhood. His own brothers sell him into slavery. His, his owner's wife falsely accuses him of rape to save her, her reputation. A fellow prisoner forgets about him for two years. And yet, everywhere he goes, he keeps rising to the top. And when he interprets Pharaoh's dreams by God's gift given to him, the turnaround begins. His destiny reignites, his whole life takes off again, uh, as if he's a jet going off an aircraft carrier. What is it that he gets? Well, we read in Genesis 41, if you'll turn there with me, if you have your Bibles, verses 41 and 42 and all the way through 57, uh, that when this time comes, when he says, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of, of great harvest, but then seven years of great adversity, uh, the land will not be producing. And my suggestion to you, this goes beyond the dream, is that you find somebody to collect the grain now. So when the hard, hard times come, please do it. And Pharaoh says, you're right. Great plan. I'll tell you what, I'm going to have you do it. And this is what he says. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain on his neck. You see what's happened? He went there as a prisoner, a convict. He's gone from the big house to the white house, like that. Um, and, And it's all, you know, this happens in one, probably one morning. And so suddenly he has great status and authority. Uh, he wears Pharaoh's signet ring, which means whenever I stamp it on, 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 on hot wax, that is as if it's from Pharaoh himself. And it is to be accomplished. Uh, more than that, 
uh, he's wearing Pharaoh's clothing, almost like an Italian suit today. He's wearing the black wig that all they, but they were always wigs. Did you know that? Uh, he's wearing Pharaoh's jewelry. He's driving Pharaoh's luxury wheels. An extra wide, golden crusted, purebred horses, Wi-Fi, uh, front and rear safety cameras, chauffeur driven, and proceeded and, um, uh, proceeded and followed by a security detail wherever he goes. So wherever he goes, he's proceeded by those who are saying, make way! Number two is coming. Bow before him. Man, that's authority. That's status. And, and, and he's known now as Pharaoh's hand-picked national executive. Everybody says if, if anybody's gonna save this country, it's not Pharaoh, it's Joseph will save us from extinction. That is status. He also gains trust and success. By that I mean, uh, you know, people are waiting on him to give the orders of what to do. They trust his orders. There's never recorded anywhere, even though there probably existed, anybody looking at Joseph and saying, that was a bad idea. It just doesn't happen because his plan is successful. The plan, collect one-fifth of the grain that's collected each year, uh, put it into storage in nearby cities so that the country will be ready after seven years of, of great harvest. It'll be ready for seven years of great famine. The plan works. He's successful. So that it gets to the point that says they can't even count how much grain they've, they've stored anymore. And finally, it just doesn't work outside in his professional life, but also in his home and family. He's given a home and family that he never dreamed of in Canaan. Pharaoh gives him a new name. Did you see that new name? Zaphapanea. No, let me say it again. Zaphanath-Panea. And then he gives him his uh, a wife, Asthenath. So Zaphanath-Panea and Asthenath-Panea. Well, at least he's come up in this way. He's gone from two syllables, Joseph, to six. That's something. And we'd like to say, what is the story behind Zaphanath-Panea? We hadn't, we don't have a clue. We have no idea how that name was given to him or what it means, but Pharaoh gave it to him and it must stick because Pharaoh did it. And then understand that when it says Pharaoh gave him a wife, not just a wife, a trophy wife, a preacher's kid. I married one. I would highly recommend it. Uh, and the preacher's kid, and and I'm still going to call him Joseph. Joseph have two children. Now it is at this place where the milestones of gratefulness are, you know, come into play. Why? Well, just hear me out. You see, in many movies, when there is this turnaround story, there comes a moment of reflection in the hero. Uh, one that I remember is the movie Wall Street from 1987. Ni- 1987, okay? And, and the, the, uh, not the, the main character, his name is Bud Fox. And he has sold his soul, but gained great wealth. And he sold his soul by, uh, offering Mr. Gecko in, in inside trading information. So, 
he rises within just a matter of weeks, and he's in his new apartment high over Central uh, Central Park there in Manhattan. And it shows him being out on his balcony and just reflecting on how far he's come. Not a word is said. Hollywood does this better than any writer could. It shows him looking back to where he came from and where he is and just imagining this moment, how quickly it has come. In the book of Genesis, Joseph has his trophy wife, his palace, his servants, his wealth, stature, his respect to the entire nation for his wise plan. And he also has two sons. And that is Joseph's moment of reflection. Do you have moments where you stop and consider what God is up to? I want to encourage you, if you don't, use Joseph, not just as your example, but also understand the depth of what he's saying. In each son, he gives a name that has personal meaning to him. The first one is called Manasseh, famous battleground. If you're from the south, if you're from the north, it's called Bull Run. And and, and to, to this son, Manasseh means, I, I, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The name forget all is, of course, not quite true because if he forgot all, he wouldn't have named him Manasseh. But what he said is the effect of what was going on in my life because of, number one, my brothers who sold me into slavery, and number two, all the adversity, all the trouble I had in the first 13 years of coming here into Egypt, I've forgotten it all. And the issue is, God made me forget. God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. So the first son is named Forgetful. Don't do that. Moms, dads, don't do that. Imagine when he becomes a teenager. Manasseh, you take out the garbage yet? No, Mom. I forgot. You name me, it's true, I forgot. Okay. Well, the second one works the same way. He, they have a second child, and the second child's name is Ephraim. And this is what uh, Joseph says about Ephraim. It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. It is the land of his suffering, and yet God has still made him fruitful. So the second one's name is fruitful, forgetful and fruitful. Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, so, Asenath, you know, mom, looks at fruitful this time because he's gotten older. Fruitful, did you take out the garbage? Mom, my name's fruitful. I bring things in. I don't take things out. This is below me. As, let's face it. Parents, your kids taking out the garbage is a genetic thing. They always forget Okay, it's below them. They, it's not going to happen. So it's just not in a name. It is just part of their genes. Well, in the names that you reflect, it was part of my genes, okay? So in the names that you reflect here with Joseph, do you understand that each of them, Joseph begins the statement with, God has made me. God has made me. Joseph 
gives honor to God who has protected him, who has blessed him, who has been with him in every terror, every fear, every betrayal, every setback that he experienced. God is with him. God is the prime mover of Joseph's life. You know, in our secular society, giving God honor for the events in your life is becoming more rare. We, we know that there's many people who honor God when their life is blessed. But who do you rely on when your life is grim? Who do you honor, both in the good and the bad times? In his book uh, on this subject, uh, Max Lucado gives three reasons. He actually gives four, but I didn't agree with all four. Um, so you can get the book and read for the fourth one. But he gives three reasons why all people, not just secular people, why they have barriers to gratefulness in their lives. The first is busyness. You know, we have so many urgent things going on in our lives. There's just no time. I've got to move on to the next priority, the next urgent thing. I have a checklist for what I'm going to be getting done today. And giving, uh, giving God thanks is just not on that. It's not, he's not on the checklist. What will it take for you in your busyness to be able to say, thank you, God, for what you're doing? Will it take winning the lottery or will it take some disaster in your life? What will it, go, what will it take to put God on the checklist of your busyness? The second thing is caution. That's me all, all the time. You know, we say, oh, This is really good, but it's not going to last forever. I I, I dare not go overboard. (laughs) Because, you know, I'll I'll be so thankful and be spreading it around so much that when the other shoe finally drops, I'm going to feel like a, a real idiot. We're cautious. We're always afraid we'll go from the White House back to the outhouse. The third, and this is the one I want to camp on, in our secular world is just human arrogance. So common in our day. What we want to say is, boy, this has been a great event. And I'm so glad I worked so hard to earn it. It's all mine. I worked hard for this. I deserve it. God hasn't been in the picture. So... You know, when, when I see that, uh, you know, uh, that the bank account goes up, when I see that the house is remodeled, when I see I'm, I, I'm, I'm driving better cars than I ever imagined, when I see my perfect children lined up in front of me, I get the credit. You are the prime mover. And I want to say this. We're living in a community of very high achievers, like this one, you know, that we live in. And if you really think you're the prime mover of all the events of your life and all of your good fortune, then go for it. But what will you do when disaster strikes you? What will you do? Will you be the one who looks to heaven and says, why me, God? Suddenly God comes in the picture. But he hasn't before. So you finally look at God when you're facing disaster. But
but not when you're facing fortune. Are you one of those who's gone through that and say, why me, God? Or maybe you'll hear hear these words like this. Are your affairs in order? Check your will. Your estate plan. Prepaid funeral. And then maybe you'll, you'll be caused to reflect one more time. You know, just yesterday, it was the most amazing thing. I talked to two people, and, and the, in their families, they're both facing life-ending crises. They're both doing it. And, 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 uh, and, and, and they both said, you know, they're from Christian homes, and that's fine and wonderful. But one came so sudden that the family was not prepared. And uh, everybody says, have you checked? You know, are, are, were his affairs in order? And the answer was no. So the family is scrambling around trying to do that. I'm not saying don't get your affairs in order. But will you be saying, mm, there's one more thing I neglected to do. Or will you be like that song that, you, that we've been singing a lot in this series, 10,000 Reasons to Give Him Thanks? Which will you be singing? You need to identify whether you're a self-made person or a God-blessed person. You identify, you choose, and then you start to live the consequences of those choices. And I trust that as you've read Joseph with me, that you can, you can say with confidence that God is with you like he's with Joseph. Why? Because he's sovereign and he's ever-present. That God is blessing you, that God is protecting you. And yes, we do face adversity. But even in the midst of adversity, we do not believe that God has abandoned us. Now, let me give you another example. This is... This is not a turnaround story. This is God, okay? But it's a great model for us in terms of grateful milestones in our lives. From uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is speaking of what he heard the disciples say Jesus did at the Passover meal or what we call the Last Supper. And, and Paul repeats what has been told to him. It says, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then he did the same for the cup after giving thanks because each part of this exercise, this Passover meal, begins with Baruch Adonai, I thank you, O God, or we thank you, O God. Each part has that prayer in it. Now, let me ask this question. I'm going to read it again. The Lord on the night that he was betrayed and when he had uh, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, when is the last time you heard betrayed and thanks in the same sentence? Not probably often. More than that, with Jesus, when is the last time or how often have you seen betrayed and thanks given in the same heart? You see, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. Jesus knew that he was about to give up his life. And yet he goes through the whole Passover meal, giving thanks to God, giving thanks to God, giving thanks to God. He knew that the moment was coming, and yet he continues to give thanks. He knew that uh, Judas would snitch on Jesus. He knew that Peter would not just deny him, but curse Jesus. 
But at that moment, Jesus is giving thanks. There are many that give thanks for the good things in their lives. And there are many who do not. There are a few who give thanks in the midst of evil. Those who give thanks in the midst of evil know that the Lord is with them. Think about movies. I mean, how many death scenes, you know, suddenly death comes on somebody and the last words were, tell my wife and children I love them. Isn't that what you have to write into the movie? I've never seen in a movie, Lord, thank you for a wonderful life. I didn't want this ending, but it's not the end. Sarah Young, who has written the book, um, come on, many of you have read it, uh, Jesus Calling. She, she enters this whole issue of gratefulness, and, and she has an insight that we've just got to hear this morning. She says, being grateful is, first of all, a matter of faith. You believe that there is a God, God is sovereign, he is good, he is with you, and he's not about to abandon or desert you. It begins with faith. Do you believe that God is all those things to you and, and to the entire world? This is who the God of the Bible is. And he is like none other that you will ever come across. I've studied those religions. He is like none other. It's a matter of faith. So it involves your head and your heart together. But in addition to that, she goes, it must go beyond just what you believe. It's got to go into what we call what you practice, what your activity is. You can believe, but once you finally find yourself uh, saying thanks, giving thanks, then it's affecting you deeply, but it's also affecting those who are around you. Uh, did we get that... Um, that last Venn diagram, the three, there you go. Okay, thank you. It's been an amazing week. I'm still working on Thursday, okay? Uh, <clears throat> so we're, we're still catching up here. But do you understand, that, therefore, if you're going to be a grateful person, that it begins in your head and your heart. You read something like Joseph, and as you read that, he goes, he still believed. After all that happened, he still believed. But then it goes down into his heart because... You know, what you know and, and what you deeply feel have to fit together. And then, finally, it's shifted to his activity. The milestones were Ephraim and Manasseh. God made me forget. God made me fruitful. And every time he could look at those children, he could remember that they were milestones of where God had taken them. And then you find that once it becomes a discipline or a normal part of your life, and and it's one of the activities of your spiritual life, then it begins to affect everybody around you and every relationship you're in. I don't want to be Grandpa Grumpy Pants. But I have all the makings of being Grandpa Grumpy Pants. It would be very easy. I don't want to be Grandpa Mr. Fun, but I want to be Grandpa Grateful. I want to be grandpa grateful and that my grandchildren are hearing from me all the great things that God has done. I want it to be part 
of my activity so that the relationships I'm in benefit from it. So that's how it happens. Do you believe that God is working for good and he's working in all things in our lives? He has not forgotten us. He is with us. That is faith. Do you believe that therefore it should result in constant activity of us saying it time and time again of all that he's done? And when we say it, we believe others will notice. You see, it's not about what you will name your children, but it's how you express your trust in God. And Joseph just decided to do it through his kids. There's many other ways out there. So what is the evil, the disaster, the disability, the disappointment, the loss in your life, which is continually churning you up? What are they? What are those things? Would you apply your head and your heart and your activity to me now in prayer? And let's just pray through these things. Let's pray. Lord, the answer here is partially not just what you did through Joseph, but what you did in Joseph. Yes, you through him you saved a nation. But also going through all these things, you made him a man of God. And I ask that like Jesus, we might experience both adversity and gratefulness in our lives. That we might be able to say in the same sentence, it's not that I like what's happening, but Lord, I give you thanks in it. Lord, we just now acknowledge that you are good and you work for good. And in this moment of reflection, each of us confesses, we trust that you love us deeply and you're with us forever. And your promise is true. You will never leave us nor forsake us. It's not because we're so worthy, but you're so great. Thank you for sending Jesus. And whatever this situation may be for each of us, Lord, we trust you and you alone to sort this out. And I want to give you thanks in it. I want to give you thanks through it. And I want to give you thanks for it. I'm asking that Joseph's children would help me this week in this process. That you'd teach me to forget. And you'd show me how fruitful you have made me. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We come now to communion at Bergen Park Church. We try to set aside the first Sunday of each month to do that. And in our communion, if you are new to us, um, there's not a membership card or anything like that. The only thing that really matters is you can say that Jesus Christ is the one that you trust for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. 
If you can say that honestly, it doesn't matter what state your spiritual condition is in. We invite you to come forward. And we invite you also just to sit out of integrity or whatever is going on in your life, not to feel like you're compelled to. But please don't think you had to be here four times to, okay, to take it. When we take communion, it's very simple what we do. We do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. We understand not just that he came of the virgin birth, but his life and his death was not a one done by government, but one done by God. It was a sacrificial death. So the shedding of his blood results in all who trust in him and the forgiveness of sins and that gift of eternal life. So with those who are going to be serving communion, please come forward. There'll be five stations. We suggest you just go to the one nearest you. Uh, We haven't worked this out perfectly. Don't worry. What counts is that you come forward, you take communion, and, uh, and then you go back to your seats. And then we'll be just joining as we close the service together afterwards. Father, now we thank you as we come as your people to remember you. Thank you that we have this ceremony, this great tradition, in which it's not just what we believe, but it's an activity where we stand, walk forward, professing our faith in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.